Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Everything Economics. I'm your host, Talia Murdoch, and I would like to begin by acknowledging that we are fortunate to be able to gather on the unceded territory of the Coast Salish people. In an attempt to spend a week away from the devastation that exists in our world, I have decided to, instead of discussing water pricing, release a very fun and interesting conversation I had with Brian O'Rourke, author of Economics and Superheroes, about this book, his next, and how economics even fits into pop culture. I really hope you get as much of a kick out of this as I have, and I will post links to the book on the Cave Goblins website. Now, I have realised that I am pretty bad at starting interviews for the podcast formally, and often do hellos before I start recording. Perhaps I need to take a few lessons from comedy zeitgeist Doug Vandalay. But alas, I would like to welcome again Brian O'Rourke to the show. Well, we might as well just like get going then. Um, All right. Yeah. yeah. So thanks for coming on. Firstly, how did you originally get into economics, superheroes aside? Okay. So economics, that's a really interesting question. Um, I was actually a history major in, uh, as an undergraduate and um, with the intention of going on to teach in high school, they... Um, Part of the curriculum was that we spend a, a day in a high school class. Uh, we had to set it up with the teacher um, somewhere near where we lived. And I went in and spent my one day in the high school and realized that I could never be a high school teacher. It was the worst idea I've ever had. And I was just incredibly thankful that I had, I had the experience in the high school uh, before going any further in, in the uh, in the education system. So um, I sort of started to panic because as a history major, I wasn't sure what I could do other than be a history teacher. And I had a a couple of outstanding econ professors who, um, they were young, they were just starting uh, in as college teachers. And I I thought, well, these guys are great. They're really exciting. Uh, They seem to, they seem to really enjoy this particular subject. I had taken a couple of classes, but not very much. and had just about enough open slots in my schedule remaining before I graduated uh, to fill out the econ major. And um, and sort of that was where I, that, that's kind of what pushed me into the into the economics uh, field was, was abject panic that as a history major, I was never going to be able to find a job. That's pretty interesting that you say that. I kind of went through something similar um, when I was in, high school so I did I wasn't too sure what I wanted to study but I was taking history English literature and economics and I was thinking Uh like doing history and English literature would be ideal but I just don't think I can be a teacher (laughs) so I'm gonna go with economics (laughs) because maybe one day I'll want to be a teacher but not right now yeah I did I did my undergrad um I was considering doing some post-grad work, but just burnt out a little bit. Um, yeah, and, and I, I had, like, some good jobs and stuff like that, so ended up uh, yeah, that, that, working. That makes a big difference. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, I think it was more the fact that I had work and I was a little bit tired of being poor and working in bars. <laughs> so I was like, I'm going to do this because you can always go back and study. And Sure. I'm glad I made that choice because it sort of led me to do this podcast where I can get distracted by a multitude of economic um, areas and not just have to focus on one. <laughs> so that's right, pretty, right. It's worked out for the best. So, yeah, so okay, cool. Great. So you did history and then you took acons instead? 
So do you do you work in the industry or are you just a writer at this point? Well, yeah, I, uh, I've, I've actually been teaching economics for gosh, about 16 years oh, at awesome. university. So um, I started down in, uh, in Virginia, taught at a school down there for four years, and I've been at uh, Robert Morris University, which is just outside of Pittsburgh, for the last, uh, geez, I guess, almost 14 years now. Do you have any sort of specialty that you teach in? Well, I, it started off as law and economics, and, um, and some public finance, but it's gradually become more and more um, pop culture and, and sort of incorporating that into classrooms. And um, I teach some intermediate macro theory and a lot of principles classes, which are a lot of fun. Um, we have classes for business majors and we have classes for non-business majors, which, um, again, it, it, it's interesting to me because I, I still get to interact with those students who are studying history and, and political science and other subjects that I really enjoy. Um, so, you know, teaching, teaching students economics is, uh, and, and making it applicable to their different areas of study has been something that I've found to be really fulfilling. Uh, we have a requirement at Robert Morris that everybody has to take an econ class before they graduate. So I get, it's a captive audience to, to a certain extent, but it's certainly, uh, we try to keep it interesting and superheroes is one, one of the ways to do that. Awesome. That's really cool that it's mandatory. I wish that it was mandatory. Well, so I live in Vancouver now, but I'm originally from Australia, obviously. And we have mandatory voting. And I think everyone should have to take at least one economics class before they can enroll <laughs> to be able well, to vote. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, I, I could not ag- agree with you more on that. That would be a great thing. Yeah, totally. Okay, cool. So how did this book come about then? You sort of touched on how you incorporated it into the classroom to make it interesting but in terms of actually writing a book that's a pretty pretty major thing to do so what inspired you well yeah that's something the 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 book writing never really crossed my mind i had a a journal article about just how to how to do some basic economics in the classroom Um, but uh, doing another podcast uh, i had a, a publisher contact me about uh, possibly writing a book and I thought you know that's a lot of like you were saying it's, it's a lot of work I don't know if I want to go that route um, let me think about it for a little while and in the meantime I had another publisher contact me about being an editor of a pop culture and economics series and I thought you know what a, a really good book in that series would be superheroes so I, I've got to figure out a way if I'm going to if I'm going to work for both publishers I have to figure out a way to do two different books so uh, the, the book that's currently out, um, Economics and Superheroes, is um, is a collaboration of uh, myself, Rob Salkowitz, and uh, eight other authors. And I put sort of a notice out to see if anybody would be interested. And the book sort of just kind of fell into place where everybody had a superhero they felt connected to, that they really liked, and, and thought um, they could write some economics about. And it, it was remarkable in that nobody had the same superhero and the chapters just set up perfectly for uh, so that each chapter is about a different superhero uh, the other book um, that I'm working on that hopefully will be out uh, the plan right now is for it to be out in February um, was more of what I had initially thought a superhero book could be about in that um, there's some you know, my wife and I were watching, I'm just watching television, and 
and a, uh, a trailer came on for Superman, or Batman versus Superman. And she, having never read any of the comics, just didn't understand why Batman and Superman would fight. Uh, it seemed like a, a, a peculiar thing. These are the two biggest names in DC, and what do they have to fight about? And I thought, you know what, that's a really good question. And as an economist, as a social scientist, I thought, you know, there's probably an answer there. Let me sit down and see if I can come up with something. And when I, when I kind of came to an answer that I was satisfied with, I thought that, you know, there are probably a lot of other questions in the comic world that we could answer from an economic perspective. And so I started looking around for those. I started picking up some comics that I hadn't read in a long, long time. And I uh, just started looking for peculiarities in the comic stories and there's a lot of them and it's amazing how many of them we can answer with a with a an economic with some economic rationale totally so why do superman and batman want to fight each other (laughs) so what i came up with is that it is um it's sort of a, a facet of something in economics we call game theory where you have um two individuals who are, who are participating in an activity and they both have a particular strategy that dominates any other strategy. That strategy will lead them to a worse outcome. As uh, So if they instead would sit down, kind of talk things out and cooperate, they could reach a, a better outcome for the two of them combined. But in the case of superheroes, whether, whether you fight or whether you kind of sit down and talk it out, the dominant strategy becomes we should fight because if the other person doesn't fight I can get my way and if the other person is going to fight well I'm better off fighting as well so the dominant strategy becomes to fight and in essence it becomes what many people in game theory or economics or you know even some people who've seen this on television would know as it becomes a prisoner's dilemma where the dilemma is the the choice we make is going to put us in a worse position and there's no incentive to move us from that worst position unless there's some outside enforcement mechanism to force us into the better outcome. I love game theory. You know, that kind of makes me think of what just happened with the U.S. pulling out of the um, nuclear arms treaty with Russia. It's kind of like two, let's say, quote-unquote, superheroes. World powers definitely are just now choosing to fight. And yeah. it's likely going to end up with the worst outcome for everyone because they can't just sit down and talk it out. That's exactly but that's right. But that's a whole other thing to get into. Um, cool. So, so when it comes to Superman then, you've got in the abstracts, one of the most recognisable claims in comics is that Superman fights for truth, justice and the American way. In economics, the American way, along with truth and justice, are part of what we refer to as economic institutions. Without institutions, social order becomes chaotic. Was this sort of the basis for your chapter in this in this novel? Yeah, absolutely. Um, actually, it was you know it was something I'd been teaching in class uh, for a while. Uh, we talk about institutions and how institutions are important to facilitate economic growth. You see, in countries that don't have good institutions, like a a, a sound judicial system, that uh, that that are willing to allow corruption to go unchecked, um, who don't protect property rights. We see those countries have, they don't have much hope in terms of economic growth. Um, And those are the kinds of things that 
known or unknown, and I'm I'm willing to bet the that this was unknown that uh, when Superman was created, the creators didn't didn't think of these things as economic institutions, but they clearly are. Um, as far as what institutions or what rules of the game need to be set for countries to be successful, to countries for countries to have the ability to to grow, you need a sound judicial system, you need an unbiased uh, enforcement mechanism, you need the protection of private property, you need to eliminate corruption. If you can do those things, you're going to set yourself on some firm footing to moving towards a much better outcome for your your country economically, but also, and more importantly, for the citizens who live in that country. And that's what Superman is really doing. And sort of the trigger for this idea came – after reading a uh, an Elseworlds novel, uh, Superman Red Sun, where Superman lands in a Ukrainian farm collective and uh, and becomes essentially a devotee of Stalin, and at the sort of as he progresses through the system, he decides that well I'm going to follow the institutions that I have been brought up in, and I'm just basically going to take over the world. Um, so Superman, we can look at Superman as essentially being a company man. He he adheres to the rules that are set before him. He adheres to, you know, if he lands in Kansas, which it's good that he did, he becomes this fighter for truth and democracy. And, um, and if he lands in Russia, he becomes this fighter for um, the perpetra- uh, perpetuation of the Warsaw Pact, I think is the, the way the, uh, the author of the, of the um, graphic novel describes it. So Superman is this, is this force for the institutions in wherever he lands and and that is that can be really good for the world in that he he doesn't interfere with your life too much he you know, there's this freedom that's allowed but he's going to protect the freedoms of people generally or if you land somewhere and the institutions are bad um then he can be he he will advance those institutions instead and that can be uh, devastating for the world that's interesting. I'm not going to lie. I haven't really read Superman. I just know him from pop culture, basically. Right. At the start of this year, I had not seen any Marvel movies. Um, and then my partner was just sort of like, you have to watch these movies. You don't know who belongs in Marvel and who belongs in DC. You're missing out on this whole world of fun. Now I'm up to date. Um, so I'd ne- I never really knew that about Superman. It could be an entirely different hero or almost like well from a western point of view a bit of an anti-hero absolutely if he had in fact landed in russia are there any are there any equivalents over there that you're aware of that sort of i don't know i guess look at superman or write about superman as a hero if he'd landed elsewhere well it's you know in in the comic world it's it's kind of crazy so you've got this this particular uh, novel is, or the the Red Sun uh, graphic novel is, is kind of a standalone. But there are certainly um, parts of um, the, the DC world and the Marvel world where you have these kind of parallel universes where the superheroes, all of them, end up being being bad. So they all sort of become this this dictatorial uh, you know body that that take over the world. And you know, sort of back to the idea of institutions, there is there is sort of a I guess not a comfort level, but there is there is some sense of order when you live in a dictatorship, and and that's sort of how Superman gets 
going. He's like, I want there to be order. I don't, you know, I don't want these villains to continue to get away from, get away with things. And um, so you have this order, but you also have this, this this incredible lack of freedom that that accompanies that that order. So the question that that sort of the authors of these parallel stories of these parallel universe types of stories leave the reader with is, okay, these are this is what could happen, and there will be order, but is it the kind of order that you want to live with? And, and, and so it's, it's a philosophical question. I think it's something that's interesting. Uh, we, if we were to read this in a political, um, sort of a political theory world, um, folks might sit back and, and ponder this, you know, thinking great thoughts. Because we see it in a comic sense, people discount it as, as childish or um, insignificant, which I think is really unfortunate. I think there's some, you know, some of the comic writers out there are incredibly gifted storytellers and, and pose some very poignant and important questions just because they have you know cartoons written alongside of them I think it's, it's unfortunate that that they're so often dismissed yeah definitely and I think um, with with comic books especially it's it's a it's its own sort of talent where they're saying more with an image than with words yeah, so yeah 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 I, yeah I, I, exactly I, I it's right. it's yeah, it's almost a bit sad when people say, "Oh, I don't like comics," and you just think you just haven't found the comic for you. <laughs> Explore if you're not into like superheroes, go have a look for some indie ones or try some manga. You never know. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, my yeah kids, so that's pretty cool. My kids love the manga right now. So um, we're, we've been talking. I have uh, three girls. I have twin daughters, and then a, and then a younger daughter, and we've been talking about. Um, because I don't know anything about manga or anime or any of this, uh, any of those kinds of, of stories, but but they seem to be really well versed. They get going, and and I can't figure out what they're talking about. But but they're they're coming now to me with examples in those stories of hey, isn't this economics? Isn't that economics? I'm like, you know what? Yes, it is. And and maybe we ought to write, you know, the next book that we put together should be the economics and manga book because it's it's there's certainly a lot of content in those stories as well and I think would be really interesting for folks to read yeah I would definitely get around that um something that you might find interesting a point about manga and anime is that it's like a Japanese world and everything is set in the post-apocalypse which is basically true for Japan so it was coming from a place where they were hit by nuclear bombs and just had their country completely devastated. Okay. So the post-apocalypse worlds that they're presenting are almost like a parallel universe where, yeah, maybe all of these crazy creatures could have come about from the ruins and from the ashes. So that's pretty cool um, when it comes to manga. So the post-apocalypse is real for, for Japan, which is pretty sad. So do you, do you get into any stats or anything like that when you're analyzing um, Superman? Not too much. I mean, there there are some some things that have been put together on, um, I guess, more generally on on comics on you know who the rich people are in the comics, who are the rich characters. I haven't collected too much data on. Although that would be an interesting study to see how um, you know if Superman takes over the world, how much does GDP change, or um, you know does it go up, does it go down? If, at at uh, one point in the story, essentially. Superman is in control of every country in the world except for the United States, which has been plunged into civil war. Um, 
with Lex, Lex Luthor is the president and you know, it's just a, it, it's a terrible thing. But if you see the pictures of all the rest of the world, everything's incredibly developed and, um, everybody's very safe and, 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 um, nobody dissents. So there's certainly going to be a lot of productivity. I would think you don't want to, you don't want to be sleeping on your job if Superman can find you and then you know, send you off to a gulag somewhere. But, um, yeah, that, that's an interesting question. I think that's something that would be worth pursuing, but I have not done it. Yeah, it's it's definitely hard to do that sort of stuff as well. I've got some other sort of series in the works for this podcast that I won't I won't say what they are yet, but just trying to actually figure out the value of money in those universes and then determine like, okay, this character would be worth this much money in. And it's not always consistent because one time they might buy something like rice and it seems very expensive, but then a horse might be cheaper. And then in a completely other scene, it might be the other way around. And so it is kind of tough getting that sort of data out of fantasy worlds. You kind of have to make a lot of assumptions, Absolutely. which kind of brings me to the question. So was there anything that you found in your research and your writing that goes against, I guess, the economic laws that we live by? in our world that obviously apart from the fact that Superman can fly and all of those sorts of things, is there anything that you would just really like, no, that just would not happen. That is not a rational decision at all. You know what? When I started looking at villain behavior, I thought I was going to come up with something like that where, I mean, I knew a little bit about the crime literature, um, Gary Becker's theories on, on the economics of crime. And I thought, you know what? It just makes no sense whatsoever for a criminal to continue to try to to be successful in a world where where they're never successful. The the, the heroes are always coming out on top. Um, there was a real interesting um, set of, uh, of of comics um, that came out. It sort of came out alongside a, a video game called Injustice, um, and you have the, the sort of the starting of it of the of the story is Joker is just so sick of losing all the time that he leaves Gotham and goes to Metropolis. I thought, you know, that actually makes sense. We never see that side of the villain story where the villains are like, you know, and I'm thinking, you know, if I'm the villain and I get caught a couple times, it's just like, all right, you know what? I quit. It's just not worth it. But even that kind of storyline, um, if you if you research a little bit about sort of how how do these guys, how do these guys and girls, the, the villains continue to have these opportunities? You see that even, even that seemingly irrational behavior has a really good explanation in economics. And basically it's that the, uh, the legal system just can't, can, they cannot contain the villains because the, um, the threats to the villains are, are not, um, they're not viable threats. There's, there's no death penalty in the comics. There's only, as far as I could tell, there's only ever been one execution of a villain in a comic. And it happened in, I think in the forties or maybe the early fifties, the villain was that was a worm character and uh, Mr. Mind. And, uh, and so they, they killed the worm, but nobody ever, none of the villains ever die. They go to prison. They always break out. So the punishments aren't effective. The, the, just the ability to keep the criminal from reengaging in criminal activity is is so pathetic that the villains keep trying. They might as well because 
there's no real deterrent system in the comics to keep them from doing it, at least for the for the super criminals. So you keep seeing that they see the same criminals kind of recirculating um, because they're always breaking out of jail. And in fact, you see in some in some storylines where people make sort of you know it's just like a running joke. Oh, this guy's never he's not going to stay in in prison. There's a Lex Luthor runs some some numbers to see how likely it is that the prisons are going to hold people, and he comes up with something like something like 75% of, of criminals are going to be out of jail within three months. They, you know, they break out so frequently. So the things that I have found in reading comics is that the storylines have to have some, some bit of, of reality to them. They have to be an anchor uh, to keep the readers interested. And if you start to, you know, you kind of let, let the boat drift a little too far from reality people aren't interested in the stories as much. So they need that, that anchor. And it almost seems like the economic um, motivation for behavior, the, the incentives that are in front of people that as economists, we understand yeah, this is going to change your behavior. Those in, incentives and motivations are all kind of, they're all anchored and, and connected through economics, which I, I, you know, you have to, un, you have to believe that there aren't too many, comic authors out there thinking, oh yeah, yeah, this is the reason they don't, you know, the reason they don't, um, the reason the criminals keep trying is because um, of the hand formula or something, you know, some, some kind of, some kind of legal uh, approach to who needs to take the proper amount of care. Or um, that you have to think that um, nobody's, nobody's sitting around coming up with a, a story for a comic book that says, well, if, if this if this character if this if this superhero tried to charge for their services um, before you know so let's say let's say Flash tries to charge for his services while Grodd is rampaging through um, uh, through town it, it, nobody would believe it because of the character that Flash is and because there's no way that Flash would let that destruction take place and so. So what ends up happening is that Barry Allen needs to get a job because he can't charge for his services, and uh, you know Clark Kent needs a job, and and unless you're independently wealthy, you're going to have to find some some way of employing yourself so that you can pay the bills, which is really you know you wouldn't think that superheroes would need a job, but they do. So there's all this these underlying stories, the backstories, sort of the personal story, the personal lives of the superheroes. We can't disassociate that stuff too far from reality because because of the powers because of the flying and the and the, and the running you know super you know it can run so fast and and the super strength those are the places where the where reality is is sort of abandoned but the stories themselves have to have something that hold them together and I think it's economics they face the same like challenges as as the everyday Joes that they're out protecting, but then they're also faced with the challenge of having to protect all of the everyday <laughs> yep, Joes. Yep. That's pretty interesting. I've n- never really thought of that. Sometimes I do think, like, if I'm watching a movie or saying, where do they get all of this money from to be able sure. to do that? Another thing I think that's kind of interesting is how much... So they bring many benefits, of course, if they're, you know, stopping the destruction of their world, but they also impose a lot of costs. Oh, yeah through massive fights where 
entire cities are damaged. Do you get into the costs of any of that sort of stuff in this book or do any other chapters sort of explore that idea of perhaps doing a cost-benefit analysis well, of these, actually, these heroes? Actually, um, in this, this new book coming out, there's a whole chapter on um, why people hate superheroes. Uh, you know, the people in the comics. Are, you know, there's always a, a period of time where there's a, a great dis, uh, discontent of, towards the superheroes and they're grumbling, oh, you guys, you know, if it wasn't for you... Um, these villains wouldn't be here. They might go somewhere else. They wouldn't be destroying things. You guys get in these fights, and it's terrible. And we have all this massive destruction. Um, we see that really clearly in, in uh, superhero movies. We see that destruction. Um, and there's a, a, a particular Marvel uh, comic that's um, that's really really good at illustrating sort of the uh, the collateral damage that happens with superheroes. So uh, the the Marvel Civil War uh, comic was great at this the movie the movie did it okay but i think the the sort of the um the real damage that was done in the comic was that um a, a villain who was being chased by really a, like a b-list or maybe even a c-list or superhero um the villain nitro his power is he can blow himself up and then reform well rather than being recaptured nitro blows himself up and takes out an elementary school and kills hundreds of children so we've got this enormous cost that's associated with these battles and this, this the death of all these children really brings this to a head in the, and we once again find a, a, a situation where superheroes are fighting each other um, but it's this cost and benefit analysis um, maybe not even so much with the numbers but just to see how the, the how what the superheroes do is what the superheroes do worth the potential damage that's out there and 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 how do we internalize those costs that the heroes impose upon the rest of society? Marvel, sort of in a in, in an attempt to address that particular question, um, had kind of a just a really curious uh, book that ran for it kind of off and on for a while, um, based on a uh, based on insurance agents who would sell services to the superheroes and, and to some supervillains so the heroes and the villains would end up paying insurance premiums and this company Damage Control would come in and clean up all the mess and of course you know it's a superhero story so they can clean up the mess really really quickly but so, so as an economist I'm looking at this and it's like oh my gosh this comic realizing the, the negative externalities that are imposed upon uh, people who live in the superhero world are are trying to uh, trying to explain how that cleanup can happen and how we can internalize that externality through this uh, through this you know in some parts really really funny comic um, as they deal with these problems that if you lived in a superhero world that you would be facing on a regular basis. Yeah, those premiums would be through the roof, I imagine. Absolutely. Do you think that would be probably the most efficient way to deal with the costs and the negative would externalities? I, it would probably be the most efficient. I just don't know. Like you mentioned, the premiums would be out of this world. So someone, someone like Spider-Man, yeah. you know, Peter Parker selling photos to the Daily Bugle, I don't know that he could... Um, I don't know if he could afford his payments. He would need he would need Tony Stark or someone to come in and pay his premiums for him. 
Yes, they would maybe have to do like a group benefit kind of thing. If you're an Avenger, you can get our discounted insurance rate as as part of your membership, something like that. Is there anything else you want to talk about to do with that chapter or um, the book as well, a whole? Gosh, I guess um, let me kind of go back to the first book, so the, the Economics and Superheroes book that's out now. Um, there are some some really, I think, interesting chapters that that deal with one of the most common questions I get when I talk about superheroes and economics is, well, we can understand how, how the males would like this, but do the females enjoy it? And, um, and, and my answer to that is sort of what got me into comics and, and economics in the first place was just sort of listening to my students talk amongst themselves before classes would start about superhero shows. And it was, it was a guy and a girl sitting there in class saying, they're talking about um, a, a show, the Green Arrow, that was that was um, playing on one of the networks. Um, it was a, a, you know, it was on every week, and, and they would come in once a week, and they would talk about, kind of do the recap of what had happened before. And the girls were, you know, just as interested in the guys as what was going on uh, in these in these stories. Um, and of course, the, you know, the the ticket sales are for movies are seem to be fairly well distributed between males and females. Um, but anyway, so, so in this book, we thought, well, you know, it, it would be, I think, important for us to include something about a female superhero. And the female superhero that jumps right out at you, of course, is Wonder Woman and, and with the new movies and with kind of her longevity in the comic world. And the, the history of Wonder Woman is, is just remarkable. It's just the, the, the guy, um, William uh, Moulton, who starts the the comic and, and is sort of the original writer. His view of the world was basically that women were going to take over and you better get ready for it. So he was sort of, he was trying to prepare the world for the takeover of, of the United States and other countries by women. Um, and sort of this, this great matriarchy that was going to be taking over. Um, and then it would lead to a world of, you know, less violence and, and more harmony. And so you see these things in the, in the Wonder Woman, early Wonder Woman comics, uh, that are very, um, very much, I, I very much what becomes sort of the foundation for for the feminist economics that we see uh, today. That that got started in the late '60s, but we see a lot of this stuff um, sort of written out in the in the Wonder Woman comic in the early '40s, in the mid '40s, where um, Wonder Woman's advocating for women to go out and get work. Where you see. Um, Sort of the evil forces trying to keep women subjugated. Uh, even during World War II, they try. There's this. Um, I think it's Wonder Woman number seven, where they try to, um, where the, the evil, uh, the, where the bad guys try to come in and and, um, and keep women out of the workplace, even though there's really nobody to take the jobs because most of the men are over fighting in the war. Um, and in so doing, you're going to you're going to end up hurting yourself just to keep women in as a sec, as second rate citizens. So, um, so we have this kind of definite thread of, of women's liberation, but it's from an economic perspective. It's how important it is for women to get jobs and to be able to support themselves for, uh, how, how important issues that women face are. There's a, there's a really interesting, uh, story in, in the early Wonder Woman comics where, um, where the Nazis have this diabolical plot to, to um, monopolize the milk industry and raise the prices so that children won't 
have milk, their bones will become brittle, and then they won't be able to fight the Nazis. But but the story starts off with these with this this single uh, this single mother who has these children, and one of the children has died because she hasn't been able to buy milk. So the story is is definitely targeted at at um, at female readers and sort of what are what are some of the the episodes and what are some of the the circumstances that they have to go through that we wouldn't that the male readership maybe not think about. So you've got these really, really interesting economic threads throughout the early Wonder Woman comics. And um, and we see, of course, sort of over the last few years in particular and coming out here with Ms. Marvel, um, the, the movie um, it's going to kind of, I think, is the intention here is to bridge the, the gap between the two Infinity War movies. Um, you see a, a definite push towards the inclusion of women in these stories. And I think in the comic world, there's always been that. That's, that's not been... Um, I mean, there have been times where it's definitely been um, sort of male-centric, but the the comic world has always been a little bit more progressive, I think, than the rest of society, which um, which to me means that your stories need to appeal to both males and females, and I and I think they really do. There, there's definitely the um, there's the action part of the comics, there's the romance part of the comics, there's kind of the the serial nature of them, the kind of the soap opera nature that um, you know that that people can follow and enjoy and um and we try to incorporate that in the into the book whenever we can yeah that's a really really good point um and it's probably i I would totally agree with that that comics are definitely inclusive and it probably comes from the fact that they're writing and creating these worlds that are very high stakes and high risk all of the time so they understand that you can't disregard half of your population and therefore half of your potential power in these sorts of situations so that's pretty cool so where can people find your book um, so the the book right now um that's out is again economics and superheroes you can find that on uh on amazon um the publisher is rutledge publishing if you go to their website you can find it there um the the new book that's coming out in february uh why does superman why doesn't superman take over the world that's uh, going to be published through Oxford University Press, and I'm sure they will have that uh, up on Amazon as well, and um, and probably wherever you can, wherever you buy books normally on the internet, you will be able to find it, and certainly on the Oxford University Press webpage as well. Awesome. Well, thanks so, so much for coming on. It's been an absolute. This pleasure. is very fun. Glad we uh, we were able to finally connect. I hope you enjoyed the lighter flavor of this episode, and thank you so much for listening. Be sure to check out this book and the next, which I can guarantee is engaging and answers questions about the superhero world that I didn't even know I had. I love the economic subject area because it truly is everywhere. Next week though, it will be back to reality and I'll be bringing you that I can only imagine oh so anticipated episode on water pricing. Over on the other side of the Goblin Cave, we have Doug Vandalay as always putting out interesting and funny material each week as he talks to all and any comedian about comedy and their comedic influences. So do set the show to auto-download, rate and review, interact, interact with our guests as well. As I mentioned last week, if you're a creator and plan on attending the Van Podfest, Doug and I will be there as well. So maybe we can meet, plan some collabs and maybe get some fun work going on. Thanks again. Listen next week. Be kind to each other. I am Talia Murdoch and this has been Everything Economics.